Why are you here? We often heard Mr. Armstrong ask that question years ago, and we sometimes ask ourselves that question today, why are we here? But I'd like to modify that somewhat for our purposes today. For those of you who are first-generation Christians, I'm assuming you know why you're here today when you're viewing this. After all, you were called out of the world. You were called out of darkness. You were brought into the light. You were deceived, and then the cloak was taken away. You were keeping Christmas, perhaps, or Sunday, believing in going to heaven. And then God opened your mind to the truth. And suddenly you had to make a decision. Sometimes there might have been great opposition by family and, and friends, but you were drafted and handpicked by God into his work. And you're part of the body of Christ. You were put into the body by the Father and according to his will. But what if you're not a first-generation Christian? Then why are you here? What if you didn't grow up in the world, but sat at the feet, literally, of your parents in the church of God, growing up from a child knowing the scriptures, knowing the truth? What if you didn't have that uh, light bulb moment, the on the way to Damascus calling? Why then are you here? Are you sort of an accident just happened to pop into the church because of your family, uh, sort of got into the building when no one was looking just before the door shut because of your parents? Is that why you're here? Is that all why you're here? Just because your parents brought you? Just because you were raised in this church? Just because this is what you learn? And I'm not just talking to the, the small children. I'm talking to adults who were brought up here as well. Are you here just because you were brought up in the church? I'd like to talk about the church of God today, the church that Christ is building and adding to, the body he is putting together, the first fruits. But I'd like to specifically address a group that might have questions or doubts or concerns about their calling from time to time. Today, let's talk about the church of God the next generation, the church of God, the next generation. Over in the book of Acts, we find in Acts chapter 2, we often read this on the day of Pentecost. When we come to the holy day, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. A very dramatic and a very powerful uh, event on this day, this day of Pentecost back there when the church of God was founded. And then in verse 36, you know how Peter stood up and he spoke and he told those who then were, were listening and were responding, he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, 
whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those who were hearing and then those who responded, who wanted to know what should our response be, and Peter explained, you need to repent, you need to be baptized, and then you're going to receive this gift, this tremendous gift of the Holy Spirit. But notice this, verse 39. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Very interesting statement here he was saying. He was saying that God meant for his truth to be passed down in families. We are today the ones afar off. The ones who are perhaps the spiritual great, 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 etc. grandchildren of these disciples in a sense. This is looking way down the line at us, at those who are responding today and those who are learning today and those who are receiving God's Spirit today. But notice it was in the context of passing it along to your children. God wants to work generationally. He wants things to continue from one generation to another. Now, it doesn't always happen. And many factors play into that. It doesn't always pass on the truth, that is, to three or four generations. Sometimes there's a breach. Sometimes there is a, 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 a breach from one generation to another for various reasons. We see that as an example in the story of uh, the Israelites in Exodus. It just has a reference in Genesis chapter uh, 15. Uh, verse 13 through 16, the Israelites were prophesied to go into uh, Egypt and in the fourth generation to return. They were prophesied to come out of Egypt in the fourth generation. And by that time, think about all that they had lost. They'd lost the Sabbath. God had to reorient them in terms of clean and unclean meats. They had fallen into idolatry. A lot can happen in four generations. We can understand that. But God's purpose and His desire is that the truth becomes multi-generational. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. This is now to the next generation of those who were going to go into the promised land. And Moses was talking to them. And he said, verse 6, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you, because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, 
The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. Notice that. A thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. It's God's will that the truth will be passed on. Now, there are unique challenges for those who are in successive generations in the church of God. For the sake of brevity today, we will refer to second generation or third generation or even fourth generation Christians as those in the quote-unquote next generation as opposed to the first generation. So we're talking about second or third or fourth generation Christians as those in the quote-unquote next generation. Now, why talk about this today? Something very interesting has happened in the modern era of the Church of God over time, and this has been going on for decades, actually, and that is the percentage of next-generation Christians has been growing in relation to first-generation Christians to the point that uh, today we, we can see that uh, it's very uh, likely that second and third and fourth-generation Christians even outnumber first-generation Christians. Uh, Mr. Mike D. Simone uh, conducted a survey in Charlotte uh, some time back to collect some information about our local brethren here. And uh, it was how they found out about the church and what generation they are and a little bit about their calling, etc. And uh, about 93 or or so people took the survey out of 250 or or so. So pretty good sampling. 43% of them said that they are first-generation Christians. 57% 57% said they are second, third, fourth, etc. And actually, that number really probably should have even gone higher because uh, we have a sizable group of preschoolers who obviously didn't take the survey themselves. So the figures are not even counting the smallest of the children. So easily we could say that in the Charlotte congregation, we're talking about 60 to 65% of the congregation are next-generation Christians. Now, this might vary uh, from congregation to congregation, uh, but I would venture to believe that uh, the percentage is fairly high across the board, around the country, around the world, in countries all over the world in terms of who is a next-generation in relation to first-generation. So what does this mean? What does this mean? There are unique challenges for those who were raised in the church. There are unique perspectives. Yes, there are unique blessings, but there also are challenges as well. And maybe it's helpful from time to time to talk about those uh, since we are getting to the point where more and more of our congregations, of our brethren, of those who are together, are from the next generation. When you look at the Bible, it's actually hard to 
find multiple generations that stuck to the truth. It's a sad uh, state. Uh, it's very rare. It's hard to find where the, the truth was passed on accurately from one generation to another. But there are a few cases. So we're going to look at a few of them today and see if there is some advice for those who are next-generation Christians and see if we can learn some, some things from that. Perhaps along the way, as we go, uh, those who are first-generation Christians can also understand more uh, and continue in the process uh, of understanding their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, their fellow brethren, uh, even better as we seek to grow together as the body of Christ. So let's go back to the book of Genesis. The first person that we will inquire about is Isaac. He was a, a second-generation servant of God. We're going to go back into uh, Genesis, but before that, just to <clears throat> stop and think about who Isaac was a little bit. Uh, we don't know a lot about Isaac, but what we do know is interesting. He was a faithful man. He walked with God. He loved God. He had a blessed life. Growing up, think about it, his father was Abraham, already a legendary, well-known, powerful uh, man, a spiritual giant. Uh, we learn from Josephus that in Babylon, uh, Abraham, Abram, had already known about astronomy and mathematics. Uh, we know that uh, Abraham interacted with Pharaoh in Egypt, that in itself uh, sort of gives a clue to the standing that Abraham had. Uh, he was wealthy, he was successful, and he was first generation. He had come out of a sinful and wicked and idolatrous society, had been torn out from it by a miraculous and specific calling by God. God had handpicked him. And then Isaac came along, the son of Abraham, what was Isaac like? Again, we don't see a whole lot. There's not a whole lot of detail about his life. But what we do see is that he was obedient to God. And that brings us to the first point to next generation Christians. And that is Isaac loved and obeyed God. Isaac loved and obeyed God. A very simple point. But very important, Isaac didn't just obey his father and obey God. He obeyed because he loved God and he loved his father, Abraham. There's a powerful example of that in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now we often talk about the faith of Abraham in this situation, and it was immense. It's mind-boggling to think about what Abraham went through, and what he did, what he was willing to do, and what he went right up to the point of doing before God stopped him, and that is offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice. 
But let's not forget the obedience of Isaac and just what an example that set. They went, they journeyed, they eventually left the servants, and then Isaac asked in verse 7, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Don't you think that um, Isaac must have started thinking something's not right here. Something's odd about this situation. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. And they went up to the mount. And finally in verse 9, Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. You know, they were up on the mountain. They had the wood. They put it all in place, and then he turned to Isaac and through tears in his eyes, he must have explained what God was requiring him to do. And as you know, Mr. Meredith has explained and told us, this was not just a voice in the night telling you uh, to kill your son. He knew God, he trusted God, he had walked with God. He had heard his voice. He had a relationship with God. This was not a frivolous thing. And through tears, perhaps, Isaac looked back at his father. And think about what must have been going through his mind. His heart was racing. His mind was racing. He could have been in his late teens, perhaps might have been big enough and strong enough to overpower his father, but he didn't. He didn't. He loved his father, and he loved God, and therefore he obeyed them. He really became a type of Jesus Christ, who was obedient unto death. He was willing to die to be obedient to the Father, to the Eternal. What is God looking for in the next generation? Obedience through love. Obedience through love. You know, the norm, especially today, is for one generation to rebel against the elders, to not care, to not obey, to not love. And that's become something almost to be expected. The last thing you want to be known for is to be loving and obedient. That seems kind of weak. It seems sort of sort of wimpy to just follow in your elders' footsteps and be obedient and love it. <coughs> loving obedience is difficult, isn't it? It's not always easy, even if your father is Abraham, rich and powerful and faithful to God. There are times when it's hard, as Isaac found out. There are times when obedience to God and to parents is hard in our time. If we have friends who are not obedient, 
that's a strong pull. We, we may want to be like them, even if they're not setting the best example. If they're getting into things that break God's laws, things they ought not do, things that are dangerous to them or to others, or if they're watching movies or, or Internet or, or videos or books or things online that they ought not, and we can be pressured, and you don't want to be seen as a prude, that'd be awful. You don't want to be seen as someone who's not willing to try the dangerous thing. But if you love your parents... You'll obey them. If you love God, you'll obey Him. Loving obedience. Maybe if you're older, maybe you have friends that run down the church, complain about the ministry, and gripe about authority. You know, nobody wants to be seen as sort of naive, not with it, not sophisticated. So it takes a lot of guts to go against the crowd, to go against the stream. But if we love our Heavenly Father and if we love Jesus Christ and we come to know that He loves us, we'll obey Him. It actually takes a lot of strength to obey and to be one who is known and has a reputation for obeying. Isaac did. He was a second-generation servant of God, not a first-generation. He wasn't the first to blaze the trail. He was a second-generation. But he had a reputation for loving obedience. You know, it's an interesting example when we look at and think about Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we find the loving obedience that Jesus Christ had. Romans chapter 5 and verse verse 6, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ loved us. The Father loved us. And he, Christ was willing to die for us, for our sins, so that we might have life. We might ultimately be in His, his family. If you are a second or third or fourth generation Christian, don't be afraid of having a reputation of one who obeys, of one who puts God first, of one who follows their parents. We're not here to serve the crowd. Ultimately, it's not what the crowd thinks that is important. We're here to serve God. He's the one that matters and and to love and obey our parents. Love is the key. Loving obedience. The next person in our case studies, you might say, is Jacob. Jacob, the son of Isaac, he was a third generation servant of God. Jacob is very interesting too. One of the first things we notice right away in his life from the account of cheating his brother out of the birthright and then the blessing Jacob was carnal. Jacob had human nature like everyone does before conversion. 
and he wasn't yet in tune with God when we catch up on, in, on him in the story. Specifically, God was not yet real to him early in the story. Esau threatened to kill Jacob. There was a family crisis. Jacob ran for his life. He spent the next 20 years on a very crucial journey. And some interesting things happened along the way. Notice in Genesis 28. Genesis 28. So now this is a third generation servant of God. Genesis 28 and verse verse 10. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your descendants. Notice how the Lord referred to himself. I am the God of Abraham, your father, actually your grandfather, and the God of Isaac. He did not yet say, I am your God. Jacob did not yet have a close relationship with the eternal. He's called the God of Abraham, Isaac, but not Jacob yet. He didn't have that relationship. But the Eternal was offering it to him. He says, The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Verse 14. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. In you and in your seed all families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Notice verse 18. Then Jacob rose early in the morning, took the stone that he had put at his head, and set it up as a pillar, poured oil on it, on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, And keep me in this way that I'm going. And give me bread to eat and clothing to put on. So that I come back to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. You notice that? And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Very interesting. God issued a calling And Jacob responded by taking a step toward him. He said, if you bring me back, I'll tithe to you. I will respond to you. I will obey you. And you'll be my God. What's the lesson here? How do you get to know God? If God is not real to you as a second or third or fourth generation Christian, How do you get to know God? 
you start to move toward God in small ways. You know, Jacob asked God to reveal himself. That's the second point. The second point for the next generation. Ask God to reveal himself to you. That's what Jacob did. And for the next 20 years, it happened. A process had begun. If you are a second or third or fourth generation Christian and you don't feel yet that God is your God, you don't feel yet that you have a relationship with him, ask him to reveal himself to you. Show him and talk to him and let him know that you want that relationship, you're seeking it, and you desire it. You know, God does not mind if we test him, so to speak, if we put his ways to the test. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10, we often read this in terms of tithing and giving offerings. But notice what he said here. Malachi 3 verse 10, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I'll rebuke the devourer for your sake so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field. Try me now. Test me now. Just like Jacob was doing. If you are a next generation Christian and you feel like you're at this point, Take a step towards God. Test Him. Try Him. Ask Him to reveal Himself to you. If you haven't really begun fasting, begin fasting. Start doing it on a regular basis. If you've not been faithfully tithing, start tithing. Start taking out 10% out of your check or your wage, uh, your income, before you do anything else and start putting him first in, in your finances. If you've been lax on Bible study or prayer, start reaching out to him. Start making it a priority in your life. You start testing him, proving his way of life. You start walking according to his word. And that's the way to do it. That's the way to, to move forward, to take a step toward him and ask him to show himself to you. Psalm 11, I'm sorry, Psalm 111, Psalm 111 and verse 10. Psalm 111 and verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. If we want more understanding, we have to start taking steps towards God. We have to start doing things to try and to test His way. And as we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. So back to our story. Jacob went off to Padan Aram, which today is in Syria, and he met his uncle Laban. He really met his match. His uncle Laban uh, was... Uh, 
quite a conniving fellow. And he went through a lot of experiences, some good, some bad. And 20 years later, it was time to return to his homeland. But he had to confront Esau. Notice his change in attitude. Notice the change in Jacob's attitude from when he left home until he came back 20 years later. Genesis 32 and verse 9. Genesis 32 and verse 9. So he's preparing to meet Esau, and he's he's praying, he's talking to God. He says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. What a different attitude. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You can sense a change in the relationship with God. He had been seeking him. He had been growing in that. And it was a result of him reaching out in little ways toward God. And then God responding to him and a relationship developing between Jacob and the eternal. So notice in chapter 32 and verse 22. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. This is such an unusual uh, situation. I've often wondered how did this wrestling match start? It doesn't really say, but he was there alone meditating. This man appeared, and uh, of course he uh, began at some point to perceive that this this was the eternal. He said, uh, let me go for the day breaks, but he said, this is now in verse 26, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Verse 27, so he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob, verse 28, and he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, what, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it you ask me about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Remarkable story, remarkable event here that happened when Jacob was all alone. Jacob had come to a personal relationship with God. God had not been real to him before. And maybe it was because everything had been given to him and he didn't value it. You know, that can happen with us in the church. It can happen if we are the next generation Christian. 
It's natural. We're given so much. How can we really deeply value it at first when we have been given things that are beyond comprehension? The blessings of this life, the blessings of God's way, the blessings of being taught how to obey Him and love Him and seek Him. And we might even think, you know, what can we possibly do in the church? How can I contribute among all those who've gone before me? They are the spiritual ones. I'm not. How can there possibly be a place for me in the church? You know, maybe Jacob felt that way. Maybe he was measuring himself against Abraham and against Isaac. And Jacob had to get his hands on God, so to speak. And it literally happened. He literally wrestled with God. What a a strange story in one sense, but he wrestled with God. And God did not correct or punish him for this. God wanted Jacob to grab on to the promises, to grab hold of him and his way of life instead of whatever was passing by and caught his eye, like his brother's birthright, his brother's blessings, and whatever he could get for himself. He, God was saying, grab hold of me, and I will give you the true blessings of life. Really go for it with everything you've got. Love me with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Isn't that what God is saying to us? Grab onto me with both hands. I want to bless you, but I have to know that you really want what I have to give. Well, Jacob did that, and Jacob became the third of the patriarchs. His name became the national name of Israel. Not Abraham's name, not Isaac's name, but Israel, the third generation servant of God. Does God look at it as a curse to be born into the faith? Does he look at it as somehow less genuine of a calling? You know, those of you who um, are first generation, understand that those who come after sometimes feel like their calling isn't as important or it isn't as special or unique or as genuine as yours. Because you were called out of the world. They just came along with their parents. You may not realize this, but this is what some next generation Christians struggle with. God doesn't see the next generation calling as as less significant. In fact, someday in the millennium, every generation, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, Everyone will be a next-generation Christian after a while. It's not an inferior sort of calling. We have no idea what God has in store downstream. Is God limiting opportunities to have an impact to just the first-generation Christians only? Absolutely not. You know, for years... Second-generation Christians have been making contributions to God's work in the ministry and as solid, stable pillars in the church. You know, look around uh, virtually any congregation and you're going to see 
second-generation Christians who have labored for years in the church of God, in God's work, faithfully, because they went after God all out, and He became real to them. They wrestled with Him. And more opportunities await third-generation Christians, and fourth, and fifth, and, and beyond. But it takes obedience. It takes asking God to reveal Himself to you, really going after Him. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 25. Here's a prophecy. He says... uh, when you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. You will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. He talks about how the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. And this, of course, is the punishment and the correction for Uh, disobedience for apostasy and there verse 28 and other nations you will serve gods the work of men's hands wood and stone which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell but from there you will seek the lord your god and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and all your soul you know if god says to our people that he will respond to them when out of captivity They seek Him with all their heart and all their soul. Will He not respond to second and third and fourth generations today? If we seek Him with all of our heart and all of our soul now, like Jacob did. But it takes going after it. You know, sometimes we don't don't even know how to approach Him. And we can ask Him to even give us the desire to approach Him. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. God will work in us both to do the work and even to help us to have the desire to stir up the will and the desire to do it. But we have to ask Him for it. We have to want it, and we have to take steps to go toward Him in that. But it's not only obedience and the reality of God that we need. We need perseverance in trials. For that, we come to the story of our fourth-generation servant of God, and that's Joseph. Joseph. Think about Joseph's life. He came from a family that was well-respected, that was wealthy, blessed by God, and he was the favorite. He had the multicolored coat to prove it. Life was good. Things were going pretty well. He had a fast track. And then the bottom dropped out. You know the story? Thirteen years as a slave and a prisoner. Came out of nowhere. 
And he was going to learn powerful, important lessons through the experiences. You know, Joseph was sold into slavery, but it wasn't because he had a great sin. In fact, he had sterling character. He resisted the temptations of Potiphar's wife. He was obedient to God even in his darkest days, and he had a relationship with God. (coughs) But he did have lessons to learn. And the time in servitude and prison... Uh, certainly dramatically humbled him and taught him some powerful lessons. The lesson is every generation will have its trials. And for Joseph, Joseph had faith in God even in his trials. Joseph had faith in God in his trials and that God would be with him in his trials. You know, sometimes we can hear the stories about the past and think all the, all the exciting stuff has already happened. I remember going to Ambassador College as a young adult and everything was built. My father and mother had gone uh, before and my dad was there when cam- the campus was still, uh, many of the, 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 the buildings were being uh, acquired or renovated, remodeled. And he was on one of the crews that was remodeling some of the dorms, some of the the buildings, the homes, four dorms. But by the time I came, everything was built. Everything was set. And it was sort of handed to us on a silver platter. And in some ways, it seemed too easy. We were getting away with it too easy. It was too smooth. And then the bottom dropped out of the church. I found out how quickly things can change and that my generation was going to have to face trials and tests just like the previous generation. There will be trials for next generation Christians. You can count on it. There will be. But God will be with those who obey him who seek a personal relationship with him and continue to trust that he's with them even in the trials. That's the the lesson of the story of Joseph. Let's turn over to uh, Genesis 39 and verse 1. Genesis 39 and verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph and he was successful and was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house in all that he had put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake 
And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Notice in verse 19. Now this is when he's in... uh, when he is uh, arrested wrongfully. Verse 19, So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, uh, when Joseph was accused wrongfully and arrested, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him, put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison, but, notice this again, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Three times the scriptures repeat, the Lord was with him. You know, this is key for our next generation Christians. If you're obedient, if you seek God in a personal way, if you grab hold of him and don't let go, no matter what you face, he will be with you. He gives you that promise. He says he'll never leave us or forsake us. He says that in Hebrews 13. That's a promise. No matter what happens, no matter what trials you face, no matter if you face money problems or difficulty finding a job or keeping a job or relationship problems or family or health issues, life or death issues, God will be with you. Persecution someday, God will be with you. He promises. We talk about on the day of Pentecost, about the Holy Spirit is the comforter and the promise that when we walk with God and God sends his spirit and Jesus Christ talked about the spirit being sent, that he would always be with us and God would always be with us through his spirit as we obey him and love him and seek him and ask him to reveal himself to us. And he'll more and more show us that we have a place in his body, in his church. He wants us to understand that. He wants to take care of us. He wants to, to, uh, for us to understand the promise. He doesn't take it lightly. He doesn't throw around those promises lightly. What happened to Joseph in the end? Well, we know he went from a dead-end situation to one of the most prominent positions in the world at that time. And really being the ancestor of the English-speaking nations today that will be dominant in the last days. The forefather of the most powerful nations on earth today as a fourth-generation follower of God. Are there opportunities for next-generation Christians You know, we can assume that um, fourth generation is less important than first generation. Brethren, it is not the case. God is giving opportunities to be in his work for everyone. There are so many ways that we can help and so many ways that we can get involved. Notice in Luke chapter 19, 
Luke chapter 19. It just takes vision to see it. Luke chapter 19 and verse 11, this is the parable of the minas. We know and understand how the, the story goes that the certain nobleman went into the far country and delivered uh, his, to his ten servants ten minas. And um, verse 16, then came the first when he returned, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you are faithful and very little have authority over ten cities. What is God looking for now? He wants to see if we are faithful in little. And anything we have in this life is little. Any opportunity, any responsibility we have in this life is little. But it's training us, if we have the vision to see it, for some really, really big things in the future. Is there nothing to get excited about for a second or third or fourth generation Christian? There's everything to get excited about. Not only do we have, as it says here, the, the, the future of having a job in God's work to bring peace and to bring blessings on this whole nation and this whole world, all the nations around the world, but just being a part of the body of Christ just being a part of the family that is born into, uh, into the, his kingdom, part of the group of people who will be born into his family. You know, I recall some years ago uh, hearing my dad talk about a man who uh, he was counseling for baptism, and this, this man was very put out because uh, God did not give him an opportunity to have uh, David's job. You know, David's job as, uh, as ultimately is the king over Israel. And he didn't get a crack at that job. And what a lack of vision. What a, a lack of understanding of what all of us are being given right now. And the opportunities that every single one of us have. So many important roles to fill in the coming months and years. To be pillars, to be strong to be supports, to hold up the arms of those who lead us. You know, Revelation chapter 3 talks about being pillars in the, in the house of God, in the temple of God. Pillars bear weight. Pillars are put under stress. You know, next generationers have the opportunity to bear weight of the work, to place, take their place in the body and to be strong. And you know, sometimes a pillar is invisible. Sometimes it's inside the wall, but it's a load-bearing wall. And that wall needs to stand. And that pillar doesn't make a lot of noise. That pillar doesn't, isn't, isn't seen a lot. But you take out that load-bearing wall and the house falls down. Are you under stress? Is God allowing you to be put under stress to grow, to be prepared, to be a pillar, to be a pillar now, to take your place in the body, the, the house of God that's being built? We must prepare. We must seek Him. We must learn how to handle that kind of weight and stress and bear up under it. 
so we can bear the load and be a part of the team. God is preparing for us to be pillars. Whether we're first or second or third or fourth generation, doesn't matter. But we must see that God is there even in trials, even when we have trials. Last example. This takes us a couple of thousand years downstream from the other three to a a person who was in the New New Testament church of God. And there are some very interesting things we can learn from him. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse, verse 3. It says, I thank God, this is Paul writing, whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you as well. So Timothy was a third-generation Christian, third-generation follower of God. And God was using him powerfully, who had learned these things from a child. There's a lot in these letters by Paul that teach us about Timothy and, and about many other things. But there's one thing that I'd like to bring out. I think is significant for our discussion today. And that is, Timothy followed the pattern set before him. Timothy followed the pattern set before him. You know, as next generation Christians, not only do we need to be obedient through love, we need to seek a relationship with God, we need to ask for his help in trials, but we need to follow the pattern that is set before us in this last letter before paul died look at some of the things he said this was written around 65 a.d second timothy 1 13 hold fast the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me and faith and love which are in christ jesus that good thing which was committed to you keep by the holy spirit who dwells in us second timothy 2 1 He says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 2 Timothy 3.10 But you have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch. At Iconium, at Lystra, with persecutions I endured. What was Paul talking about? He was talking about setting and following the pattern. You know, the tendency among our generation today is I've got to blaze my own trail. I've got to be my own man or woman. I've got to cut a new road, find a new way. It's boring 
to follow the path that someone else has laid out. And I don't want to do that. It's weak. But we don't need to cut a new road. We need to appreciate those who have gone before, who did blaze the trail, who laid out the path, ultimately Jesus Christ, and all those who who went before us, paved the way so that we might walk this path. You know, as a next generation Christian, we need to appreciate those who have gone before. I'm, I'm a second generation Christian. We all need to appreciate those who have made it possible for us to be here, made it possible for us to understand the truth and who have sacrificed their lives, sacrificed their livelihood, sacrificed in ways that we can't even imagine, we have no clue as to what they did so that we might hear the truth today and we might take our place in the work. You know, when you really stop and think about it, it goes back generation after generation. We are here because of Mr. Armstrong, and others who caught the vision and sacrificed so much to keep the work going. And Mr. Armstrong learned the truth because of others who had practiced it and sacrificed and who had learned it from others who had held on to it, had the truth, passed it along against all odds. All the way back to the first century, You know, Paul said the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The trail keeps going back. The New Testament church had built on the pattern of the Old Testament congregation. The pattern keeps going on. Now, of course, as, you know, Mr. Meredith explains, uh, sure, there are sometimes changes in, in a particular understanding or a particular administration of how the work is done and when necessary when it becomes clear when god guides the leadership in that way but we don't change just to change we don't attack the foundation we follow the pattern laid out by god's servants before us paul is saying to this third generation Christian, Timothy, follow my pattern. Again, I know this is not a popular idea or a thought in the world today. You're not supposed to follow anyone except yourself. I remember a, a quote from a, the popular singer, Celine Dion, uh, speaking in an interview to a magazine. Uh, she made this statement, I am very spiritual, she said. I believe in myself. I believe in my family and I'm positive. I, I basically make my own rules. I set the pattern. I don't need to follow anyone else's pattern, and that's the sentiment today. You don't want to follow anyone else's example. That's weak. You've got to gain strength from yourself, your family, those in your circle. But Paul did not teach that. He said, follow me as I imitate Christ, as I follow Christ, be imitators. You know, Timothy is so interesting to me because he's also very reachable. He's very real. 
In some ways, he, he's very different from Paul in uh, his personality. Can you imagine anyone more different from Paul? Paul was a bit confrontational, combative. He was willing to, to charge headlong into any controversy. But Timothy seems to be the opposite. He was a bit of a worrier. Um, you know, Paul told him, take some wine for your frequent infirmities. Apparently a very sensitive person. He had fears. He was fighting them. Uh, maybe he had difficulty dealing with conflict. Paul encouraged him and bolstered him to deal with those who were causing conflict in that congregation. And Paul had to encourage him to be strong. He said in 2 Timothy 1.6, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You know, when you understand the timing of the letter, the last letter penned by Paul before his execution, Timothy was dealing with some very heavy issues. Paul was about to fade from the picture. Paul was in prison. Paul was his mentor and friend and counselor. But Paul was telling him, you don't have to be me. Be yourself. Be strong. Take your place. Do the right thing. Follow my pattern, but you don't have to do it exactly the same way that I've done it in every case in terms of personality. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. He says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. What was Paul doing in this letter? He was telling Timothy, You are going to have to be yourself, but stick to the pattern. You can do it. I remember a teen Bible study years ago uh, when I was a teen entitled, Be Yourself, But Be a Better One. Be yourself, but be a better one. You know, next generation Christians, you cannot be someone else. You can't be your father. You can't be your mother or grandfather or grandmother or aunt or uncle. You've got to be yourself. <coughs> and no one is asking you to be someone else. You have, to, you, you have unique contributions to make to God and His work and His church. Why else would He have inspired, you know, 1 Corinthians to be written, where He talks about how they're, they're all different parts of the body and every part is important. Every part is needed. You know, whether you're the eye or the ear or the foot, we all need each other. And that's, of course, what we learn when we, when we, when we talk about the body of Christ that, that He is putting together and those that the Father is calling into His church. Brethren, we all have contributions to make. We all have things that our Father wants us to do, whoever we are, whether it's serving in different capacities or whether it's encouraging others or whether it's praying or or calling and, and, and lifting up the, the hands of others 
and encouraging them and writing letters and, and being a, a, a boost to them and calling those who are lonely, serving and organizing, if that's what he's called us to do, if we can do it, fellowshipping, being friendly and praying for one another. You know, God wants us all to do our part, but it's all within the pattern the pattern of order and structure that gives us unity and peace, which so many today have cast aside, and even in the greater church of God. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about how every joint supplies to the growth of the body. Now That's why we're here, to prepare to be a part of the body of Christ, to get out this message and to prepare to be rulers and kings and priests in, in, in God's kingdom and take the gospel of peace to the whole world and be a part of God changing the world. And it all starts now. Every generation has an opportunity to contribute to the mission, to contribute to the, the work and the goal. Let's make sure that we are doing our part. Psalm 78. No matter what generation that we are a part part of. Psalm 78. And verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter... Dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have known, we will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He's done. For He established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children. The truth has to be passed on to the next generation that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. That's the goal. We have an exciting job to carry out. When we think about and ponder about the body that we are a part of and the work that we are doing, Let's remind ourselves and be remembered how God will empower us as we submit to Him and be reminded that God works through generations. Every one of them is important. As each new generation comes forward, it's important and vital, brethren, for us to remember simply to obey God because we love Him to ask God to reveal Himself to us, to grab hold of Him when He does and take that step forward when He steps to meet us, when He extends that calling. To know that God will be with us in the trials because we will have trials. Every generation will have trials all the way into the end. But God will be there with us like He was with Joseph. And to follow the pattern that's set before us, like Paul told Timothy. The pattern has been laid down. We just follow in the footsteps of those who have gone before. Ultimately, our model 
and our captain, Jesus Christ. There's a lot of work to be done. Let's keep focused on the job at hand to finish our Father's work no matter what generation we're a part of.